Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. All right, folks, welcome to another episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. My name is Adam Jones. And I'm Cameron Horine. And we're, we're back today. Um, Cameron, we've got a really cool guest. I'm excited for this episode. We've been kicking around having Greg on the podcast um, for quite a while just because he's such a wealth of knowledge. But sitting down with us today, we've got uh, Greg Luce with Missouri Soybean. And Greg, you want to give us a little introduction? You don't have to give us, I usually time limit everybody with their introduction, Greg, but I'm not going to you because I know you've had uh, a long career, an awesome <laughs> career, and so I'm going to let you take as much time as you need to, <laughs> to walk us through your introduction. Okay, well, I'll try not to take too long, but I'm Greg Luce, and I'm the research director with uh, Missouri Soybean. I work with the Missouri Soybean Association and the Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council. You know a little bit about my background. Sure. Um, I've uh, had this job for nearly seven years now. Part of the time that I have had this job, I worked with MU Extension also as a grain crop specialist. So I did that for about five years uh, alongside working with uh, Missouri Soybean. So, uh, and then prior to that, I had a long career with, uh, with Pioneer. I was an agronomist for most of the 32 years I worked with them and uh, had some other roles as an agronomy research manager and a product manager and an area manager. And then came to this role and have really loved it, uh, working with, uh, with farmers around the state and working with the soybean producers, yeah. uh, largely on, on research that's funded through the Missouri Soybean Checkoff. Okay, I got you. So you're gonna have to forgive my math there. You threw out some numbers, 30 some years with Pioneer, <laughs> seven. So when did you start kind of working in agronomy? Uh, in the Midwest? Well, I, I graduated uh, with an MS uh, in uh, agronomy. I worked in soil fertility at MU. I went to undergrad school down at, uh, used to be Southwest Missouri State. Yeah, we so, can still call it that. SMS. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's how I remember it. But so, so several of us that are, that are SMS alums still call it that. But Missouri State University for undergrad. Then I went to grad school at MU and was wrapping up in 1983, and I started working for Pioneer that year. Okay. So since okay. 1983, I've been working in uh, agronomy in Missouri. I got you. Yeah, that's a long time. So I was not yet born in 83, <laughs> Greg. I, I was all right. Yeah. That's what I was going to say, too. I wasn't quite there yet. Yeah. You know, it was funny. I we, get that a lot. We had a... Um, we had a meeting last, our, so our big agronomy, winter agronomy kind of training last week uh, with the company here. And uh, would you believe we have some folks on staff that were born in like 2001 or 1999, yeah. like right around the, you know, it's, mm-hmm. that's, I don't know, that makes me feel old. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we do with our Missouri soybean staff too. So yeah, isn't it crazy? Uh, it is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> So, research director with, with Soybean Association. I know you guys have like a research farm. You want to kind of talk a little bit about that? You bet. So, the Bay Farm Research Facility is outside of Columbia. It's about eight miles outside of town, uh, mostly east and a little south of, of Columbia. And it is adjacent to the, the Bradford Farm okay. uh, Research Center. And uh, with, there's two tracts of land, actually. So, about a hundred and 8,590 acres is south of Bradford, and then there's a, about 100 acres that lies on the north side of Bradford Farm. So we're on each side of the, the MU research there, and we work uh, closely with MU. The MU uh, North Missouri Soybean Breeding Program is located at our facility 
And so we partner with, uh, with MU on that. Um, I might mention that the Bradford, or excuse me, the Bay Farm is owned by the Missouri Soybean Association. And then the projects uh, that we have on site there are funded by the Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council. So there's a okay. really great partnership between those two boards uh, at the Bay Farm. And uh, we, we really uh, are proud of the farm. There's a lot of things that we uh, have been able to do uh, with events that's held there. We've tried to make the farm uh, better facilities for holding events, field days, tours, activities to showcase soybean research. Right. We do some corn research on the site too, but there's yeah. a lot of uh, soybean research around soybean breeding that's done on the farm, uh, as well as, you know, there's some work that's done uh, on cover crops. We have a strip trial uh, set up there where we've had, gosh, seven years now of a, an experiment where we're looking at uh, wheat, uh, cereal rye, and no cover crop compared. And then we plant in rotation soybeans and corn on okay. that ground. and. We're really, that's part of the MU strip trial program, and that's one of the projects funded by uh, the Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council and the Soybean Checkoff. So a, a lot of things that are done on the farm, uh, a lot of changes we want to make. Uh, we've been able to it, make improvements and add irrigation. Uh, we've been able to concentrate areas. We want to showcase some conservation efforts, mm -hmm. uh, edge of field work. Uh, also pollinators, uh, we work close with you all on that, Adam, and, and uh, with MFA and other partners. Uh, we work with NRCS, Missouri Department of Conservation, obviously, Clayton yeah. Light uh, and Derek Steen, who are uh, co-workers of mine. That, that They both work for Missouri Soybean and Missouri Corn mm -hmm. in the environmental and conservation space, and uh, they do work on the farm. And so we've got a lot of a lot of different activities going on there. That uh, well, I know as you get, yeah, as, and as you guys have kind of <clears throat> shifted focus to making it um, a place where you can hold events and and really kind of put it out there as as a demonstration property. I think that's really cool. Um, something that doesn't exist out in a lot of other places, and so that kind of makes it makes it unique. And especially being able to showcase all the you know conservation practices right alongside of um, some of the research you guys are funding and whatnot. I think that's that's really cool. Kind of ties it all ties it all together, really. Yeah, we we're re really proud of it, and there's a lot of things we want to do. Uh, we've got some experiments there. Kevin Bradley uh, from the University of Missouri is doing some work on the the weed zapper, weed electrocution mm -hmm. on site there, and uh, he's had. In the past, Dicamba studies for a number of years uh, before uh, Extend was was a thing. You know, before it was right. even released, he had studies there on on Dicamba. Um, we've done um, a lot of things to uh, to change the farm. We want to do more technological things. We want to showcase uh, you know current current research, um, but. There's just so many opportunities to, to do work there and with partners. So one thing I might want to put a plug in for here, uh, guys, is that we're going to have a field day on March 18th. And uh, with help from Rob Myers, we got a lot of different types of cover crops planted in a demonstration last fall. And we've got a cover crop demonstration with many species. There's about 25 different blocks out there. Plus we have the uh, the cover crop strip trial 
and we're going to have a field day on primarily on cover crops and soil health on March 18th. So there'll be more information about that, but uh, love to have you all involved in that, and and uh, we'd like to see a lot of farmers come out and and tour that event. So yeah, that's, that's cool, and that that should be a good time of year to <clears throat> kind of get the get a good breadth of what what's actually grown out there take a look at some of those species yes. and you know it looking at something that's actually actively growing versus a seedling so yeah that's cool we thought the timing would be pretty good march 18th because uh still you know time to think about and talk about the termination of, of species yeah, right. we've got some some work that the strip trial program would like to uh, uh to talk about at the field day a little bit about some you know possible termination studies that uh, farmers could could still set up even at, at that time. So there's a lot of I things gotcha. we and looking at all the species, uh, seeing the ones that uh, that winter killed that yeah. uh, we wanted to winter kill. You know, yeah. and yeah. Uh, with this weather we're having right now, I was going to say it's about two they, degrees outside right now, so we're going to test <laughs> it. They'll be, they'll be well tested, so it'll be interesting to to take a look at all that. Yeah, yeah. All right, we won't go too far down that road, Greg, because I can talk about. Soil health and yeah, we got to steer him back. Off we got it. <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> we're headed down the wrong train, but yeah, um, uh, love a good soil health field day. It's it's always fun just to kind of get together and, and be able to kick because that's a lot of it. Honestly, that's the value of a lot of those things. It's just being able to kick uh, ideas and absolutely things that we, somebody's tried and and how did that work and and trying to you know interpolate how that could work on on your farm and and just a lot of that kind of back and forth is is what makes those events cool so right and partnering with you all at mfa and partnering with the mu regenerative ag center and mdc and nrcs and all, all the the partners that we work with at missouri soybean yeah missouri corn yep. uh very much a partner so they're going to be a very uh, active partner in that field day yeah so uh, missouri corn growers association somebody we work with real closely gotcha Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you can watch our uh, communications <clears throat> events uh, and whatnot, and I'm sure that'll we'll get that pushed out as well. So, Great. But um, so, what other projects that uh, are you guys kind of involved? I know you mentioned the strip trial program. That's something that um, occurs even on you know private farms across the state. What Absolutely. you know, what other kind of projects <clears throat> is soybean involved in that you're kind of proud of? You want to talk about? Sure. And, and on the strip trial program, you know, it's kind of started a little bit in that space around cover crops and looking at, at that, but it's expanded into other things, nitrogen management and corn, uh, soybean fungicide usage, and, and so there's a lot of opportunity in that area. And we're proud of that, that program and it continues to grow. There's a lot of things that uh, are funded by Missouri Soybean, and I might mention that uh, the Merchandising Council has three main areas that they fund projects in. Uh, one of them is uh, very applied uh, agronomy projects, and those are for uh, our, our education and learning more about certain practices. And those would include, you know, the weed control and the cover yes. crops, and you know, uh, disease and insect management, and so on. But then we also fund projects in the uh, demand area, trying to increase the usage of of soybean. Uh, Matt Amick oversees that committee. Bailey Siegel oversees the committee on the education and outreach agronomic trials. And in that demand space, uh, the use of, uh, of biodiesel is one of the you know, big ones. You know, working yeah. with NBB and our partners there, uh, MFA Oil, trying to get more biodiesel usage. And that's something that Missouri Soybean's really, really proud of. 
but there's a lot of other things in that new use space that we're working on in that category too. Then the, the third kind of bucket of research projects are more basic research. Uh, soybean breeding, a lot of things done in soybean breeding around uh, drought tolerance of soybean, flood tolerance of soybean, soybean cyst nematode control and mechanisms to better control uh, cyst nematode through several different avenues, but uh, some of it is through, through genetics that we're working with with the breeding program uh, in connection with that. And then there's other uh, things like the uh, increase of protein that's very important to us. Mm -hmm. And then um, last but not least is something that we're really proud of is working with the hyolaic soybean, okay. uh, the soy laic. Uh, and that was something that uh, Brian Stowball helps to lead that program at Missouri Soybean and does a great job of that. And we work uh, in partnership with MU and other universities throughout the Midwest on that. It was a discovery at MU with USDA and Kristen Ballou and Dr. Grover Shannon, who's uh, now a retired soybean breeder that was at, uh, down at Portageville out of the Delta Center. And they had discovered uh, genes, natural genes for hyolaic. And so it's a non-GMO hyolaic product, and we're very proud of uh, the efforts and the growth in that. So yeah. there's a lot of, a lot of uh, expanse of different types of research that we're really proud of that's funded by uh, the Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council and the checkoff. And they take it really seriously, too. Oh, for sure. And it's very serious. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's really kind of positioned, <clears throat> I think, on the product side of things, it's, it's positioned as well. <clears throat> to move into this, what seems to be, you know, sustainably based fuels and, and, yes. and go in that direction. Um, you know, you mentioned the trait to be able to use a non-GMO product in, in a food grade oil. Yes. I think those are going to be extremely important markets moving forward, you know, uh, versus depending on mostly animal feed type, um, you know, product use. Right. Use. We do too. There's a lot of growth opportunity there and uh, we want to stay on the cutting edge and the research that's funded by the by the soybean checkoff we want to keep it uh, on very prominent cutting edge type type things and we're really proud of some of the accomplishments one of the things you know with with biodiesel uh, that's one maybe we don't talk about even enough um, and Matt Amick again leads that group but works really close with NBB but the Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council started funding uh, research in the very early 90s. Dr. Leon Schumacher at MU uh, led work that, you know, kind of really led to the development of the entire soy diesel industry, biodiesel industry. Right. It wouldn't have happened. Uh, NBB is located in Jefferson City for a reason. It was, it started in the basement of the Missouri Soybean Association building. Yeah. Uh, the previous building. Yeah. Before we built the Center for Soy uh, innovation. Yeah. So we're really proud of that whole industry. And yeah. And it seems growing. like we, we produce a disproportionate amount compared to the amount of soybeans that we produce in the state. You know, you mentioned that we're pretty high up on the biodiesel we production. Are. We're, we're, we're typically second, I think in the yeah. production of biodiesel. We've right. got a number of plants around the state. Uh, I think there's seven, uh, biodiesel plants in the state of Missouri and we're very big in the production and like to see more usage of biodiesel in Missouri. And we work yeah. with, with MFA oil closely on that. And we're really, uh, really proud of that industry and the growth of that and what kind of came out of the checkoff. Yeah. 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 We all like to see those things. I think, you know, we'd much like, 
much rather see a, an end use of a product like that, that that gets used used here, used domestically, than um, versus something that sets sail for somewhere else in the world. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, yeah, one thing I was, you know, you talked about the applied, you know, applied agronomic trials that you do and stuff. And mm-hmm. Greg, I mean, you you've got thirty plus years <laughs> of experience in agri you know, in agronomics, um, and, you know, you talked about even at Pioneer, you did some research, you know, charge of research things. Just, let's talk about just in the last seven years you've been with Mo- mm-hmm. with the Morsoy, how has some of these applied agronomic trials changed in the focus of, you know, where they were when you first stepped in and kind of where they're at now? You- right. Well, you know, when you said that, when you asked me that question, one of the things that popped into my head was about weed control. Right. Uh, because, gosh, we, we've seen it in... Uh, in our lifetimes here changed so much. Uh, gosh, when I started back in the early 80s, the problems were cockleburr and velvet leaf, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, products came along that became the common use products and, and uh, they didn't kill the small seeded broadleafs as well and the water hemp came on and yeah. the next thing we know, you know, the ALS chemistries and the uh, sulfonylureas and those products didn't control those and we we were really faced with a lot of issues with weeds over the years roundup ready soybeans came out uh, and then you know did a fantastic job and and then there was resistance to to that chemistry right and uh, you know now we have a lot of different chemistries that have came on you know in recent years with uh, glufosinate liberty um, then we've had, you know, the extend and the enlist products and, uh, you know, there's, there's resistance already in some of the newest products. So yeah, that's right. w- when I think about over time, that's one of the things that pops into my head because, you know, we're looking at different ways to control weeds and, mm-hmm. uh, looking at like the weed zapper, you know, it's kind of, kind of an interesting thing, but, uh. It's something that we're helping fund with Kevin Bradley's project. He's got a multi-state uh, project with it as well, working through NCSRP, which is the North Central uh, Soybean Research Program. And uh, I think that as we go into the future, we'll be looking at more non-traditional ways to control weeds, so to speak. Right. Uh, robotics, you know, controlling them through uh, very, very precise uh, technology, uh, other things besides chemistries will be looked at. And I, I think that's one of the focuses Kevin Bradley has at the University of Missouri and very timely. So well, we're going to be looking hard at that area. But, boy, that's changed over the years. We just think of the cycles. Yep. And uh, yeah, history well, repeats itself. <laughs> so. Doesn't it, though? Because, I mean, if um, just fast forward to, you know, like the day before Roundup Ready genetics were dropped. And if you could pick yourself up there and <clears throat> drop yourself into today mm-hmm. – You'd have never thought kind of the um, that wall of dominoes that basically we started knocking over yes. that day. Um, yes. You know, you thought that was the answer, not the start of the problem, essentially, um, in weed control and soybeans. But yes. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. It's uh, things that, you know, go around, come around, or you know, however you want to put it. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, work, you know, in some ways people are looking at all those different options of uh, weed control and, you know, doing... Uh, very sound agronomics, though. It, one of the things that that hits me is that you know back to the basics of sound practices is so important. Mm-hmm. You know, in, right. in fertility and in weed control, and 
you know, we need uh, a good two-pass program and weed control, uh, a good pre and a, followed by a post and having some overlapping residuals in whatever technologies used, whether right. you're using conventional soybeans or, or one of the technologies, uh, staying with good sound agronomic practices is so important. Yep. Yeah, we, I mean, we preset all the time is making sure, you know, you're utilizing two passes, but make sure you have residuals in both passes. Um, mm-hmm. Just, you know, we need to be after the seed, not the wheat, not the weed, right? We need to make sure we're attacking the seed before it's out of the ground. Absolutely. And also, you know, I mean, Adam and I have talked about it, but also just the planning and establishment piece. I mean, that's that's step number one right there. I mean, as much yes. money goes into our seed, seed, and you know, producers, whatever corn and soybeans bags it is right there. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you're planning and getting that established properly too there. And so, I mean. That also kind of leads into, you know, one other thing that I don't know if you guys have done any work on, but, you know, there's a lot of talk about early season soybeans. Yes, sir. Um, and from that aspect, and we, we, I get a lot of questions on, you know, is this trend going to continue to go? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the benefits from it? I don't know if, Greg, have you guys done any work on that? Well, we have. And, uh, you know, and, and thinking back on that, too, uh, when uh, early on in my career, uh, a lot of the work I did in industry work was was uh, very agronomic in nature. We did a lot of research plots and uh, we did soybean planting date comparisons. And I remember in uh, a plot that we had uh, just over east of here on Wise Brothers Farm, we rented a part of that uh, piece of ground and had research plots that year and had a big field day there. That was in 1985. And in the planting date study that we did, uh, the, the best planting date was our earliest date, and that was April 25th. And uh, it's kind of interesting, too, that the highest yield came at the early date, but it was, uh, I think it was 51 bushels. And we had other research plots doing the same type of trial in Missouri and Iowa. And that 51 bushels, by the way, was the highest yield of any of those plot locations, even the Iowa locations. So so things have changed. You know, 50 bushel soybeans... uh, were obtainable back then, but it was a pretty good mark. Yep. This year, yeah. the average again in Missouri is about 50 bushels. Right. That's how much things have changed yeah. since the, well, yeah. in my career. Yeah, right? and the funny thing, you said two funny things there is, right, you said the bushels, I mean, you know, 51 bushels being the highest there, nobody would be happy with that in today's day and age. But also the other funny thing I thought of is you said it was on Wise Brothers, which we all know has, a you know, Mexico um, clay, Yes, sir. Heavy clay pan, clay pan soil there, and you said it beat Iowa dirt, which most people would never believe that that happened either. So yeah. that was two things I picked out of that. Well, one thing you know, I was always uh, teased my friends in Iowa about is our, our soybean yields uh, could be very good compared to theirs. Yeah, you know, That's and uh, maybe maybe we didn't compare so well when we compared corn yields. But, yeah, but uh, yeah, but what was you know on your question about the the early planting? I think that. You know, looking at uh, the data that we did and others did at universities, uh, we've seen for a long time a trend that early dates are are good for soybeans, but how good, you know, how early is too early? Right. So it's typically been recommended that, uh, you know, plant your corn first and uh, then if soil conditions are right, get your soybeans planted on the early side. But some things have changed over the years. Uh, I know... Uh, one of the things that we had developed was more sudden death syndrome in Missouri over the years that yep. I worked in mm-hmm. my career. And then, you know, back in 2004, 
And then again, in 2014, 10 years apart, we had really bad SDS problems across the state. So it's not something we deal with all the time, but it can be bad in certain years. And, and I remember particularly in 2004, the fields that were affected the most were the early planted. There were some folks planting mid-April soybeans then up in North Missouri, and they were really hit hard. Yeah. So we cautioned, you know, don't go too early with soybeans. You know, let the soils warm up. We know that it, sudden death syndromes, a fusarium organism from the soil that you know infects the plant fairly early. So have conditions be good. That's right. Don't you think? Um, I think one of the main things that's changed um, in that avenue, in that area, the the quality of the seed treatments that we're putting on the Absolutely. seed, I think, allow us to cheat. On, if we were still planting naked beans, I think we, we'd be in that same yes. category of, of saying, wait till this. You're absolutely right, Adam. And that was the other point I was going to make, too, is, <clears throat> is just that, that, you know, with Saltro, Olivo products that control sudden death syndrome that we have now, variety selection has, you know, breeders have emphasized that. So we've got better SDS tolerance yep. along with those seed treatments. And if, you know, if folks focus on those things, um, I don't have any qualms about planting soybeans early. You know, last year, a uh, number of growers in northwest Missouri were planting at corn planting time, very early April, and planting mm-hmm. soybeans. Uh, got really cold last spring several times, and, and they managed to do okay. Now, I know further north, in, in the states further north, there some of the real early beans, uh, you know, my understanding is they got whacked a bit, but... Uh, with the cold temperatures that they had. But we've had really good results. Uh, A good friend of mine that uh, remember from years ago planted uh, a small field of soybeans March 25th (laughs) just for a little experiment. That was his best soybeans that year. So (laughs) I don't necessarily myself recommend that, hey, we get out there very first thing and plant our soybeans. But uh, I think there's a pretty good historical look at uh, Soybean planting that uh, early dates are, are important for soybean. We know we can raise really good yields of soybean over a long period of time, but that's right. But I think that trend's going to continue, and uh, with you know better seed treatments, better disease tolerance, those things, uh, we still have to you know consider you know what's too early. But I right. think I think we can be planting in April uh, yeah. and do do quite well. I think treating <clears throat> treating soybeans as a primary crop. A little bit as well too you know yes. I, I think that's changed over time we don't um, our seed placement you know our metering of, of soybeans at planting I, I feel like is much better pay a lot more attention to that than what we used to yes I agree completely Adam and I think that uh, the mindset and what you said you know considering soybean a primary crop I, I think that when I started I, I think back I think that uh, corn was the primary crop yep and soybeans were were a great crop for Missouri, always have been, but it uh, was a bit secondary in management, you know, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were planted a lot on maybe maybe on marginal acres or there was more soybean after soybean back years and years ago, too. Yep. And the rotation's been better. Um, also, uh, not just fertility but other other management aspects but I guess fertility in particular because it used to be that uh, folks would plant or plan for their 
fertility on corn to carry over onto their soybean. Kind of that two-year approach, which would yep. be okay if you applied enough for two years. <laughs> but right, a lot of times right. it necessarily it wasn't necessarily enough for each year. And I think mm-hmm. folks are looking at soybeans and fertilizing for that soybean crop, uh, managing it, you know, more closely as far as the uh, the not only the variety package but the seed treatment the scouting, the fungicides and insecticides that, that can protect it as, as needed. And folks are, we see that with our Missouri Soybean Association yield contest. Uh, that's kind of a good reflection of how yields have improved over time. You know, I mentioned yeah. that 51 bushels was a pretty high yield in uh, that 1985 trial. And in 1995, I was overseeing some uh, some soybean strip trials and uh, variety trials. And there was a couple of sites, one at Rhineland and one at Ellsbury, Missouri, that were really good. I just yeah. knew they were gonna be good. So I was telling folks I worked with, we gotta watch this, these are gonna be great. And uh, each trial had varieties that hit over 80 bushels that year. Nothing really special was done to those, by the way. They gotcha. were just managed normally. Right. So they weren't, you know, uh, necessarily uh, souped up, so to speak, or, sure. or you know, really trying for, for all-out yield, just, just normal trials. But So each trial had yields above 80 bushels, and that was a pretty big mark in 1995. Oh, this yeah. year, we had our Missouri Soybean Association yield trial. We've had the trial for continually for over 30 years, and um, this year um, we had five yields over 100 bushels in different parts of the state. Uh, some in southeast Missouri quite a bit, but also north-central Missouri we yeah. hit over 100 bushels. And um, we've continually been increasing yields so that enough that we used to have 75 bushel per acre as the recheck, and now we've moved that up to 90 mm-hmm. uh, because we're just seeing so consistent. You know, Getting I, it so often. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you remember it wasn't very many years ago and that 100 bushel mark was really elusive. Oh, it put you in a magazine. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Kip Colors and Randy Dowdy have hit these very high yeah. yields and done yeah. great. And yeah. Kip, Kip had done that in the Missouri Soybean Association yield trial years ago yep. uh, with the, the high yields he had. Uh, but 100 bushel for most producers was kind of out of the question, and now we're seeing that. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It's Much more Really, really cool to see that. And a lot of it's, I think, the, the, the great farm management that uh, farmers are doing. Um, certified crop advisors like, you know, you all at MFA are a big part of that and have sponsored that in a big way. And I think that with recommendations and farmer practices and better genetics and seed treatments, yeah, uh, all yeah. of these things added together, it's amazing what we're what we're seeing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I I agree. I think all those, but you know, I think soybean breeding just in the last you know two <clears throat> decades has really ramped up compared it to as it was. You know, yes, corn corn for the longest time was the only thing that a lot of breeders spent a lot of time on. You know, there was a lot of push on that, but soybean right. breeding has really taken off. And I mean, obviously, soybean breeding is a big part of the more you know Missouri Soybean Association and your all's. Um, help there but that's really where i think there's a lot of things taken off i mean we've seen herbicide traits but obviously a lot of other traits that have added benefit i agree i agree there's been a lot of uh, improvement in soybean yield because of genetics and the breeding efforts and missouri soybean merchandising council with the checkoff uh, funds the the two uh breeding programs in missouri missouri is kind of unique in that 
the public program has two different uh, two different programs. One at the Boot right. Heel. The Boot Heel, of course, you know, the Delta region is very much different than a lot of the rest of the state. Right. So we, we need that. Yeah. And then the, the program that works out of our Bay Farm Research Facility for to cover, you know, more of the North Missouri. And they, they do some really good work on yield improvement, agronomics that are needed for our area. They emphasize sudden death syndrome, phytophthora, all the the things that we need, but but yield in particular, but then also those traits we talked about, you know, looking at trying to keep protein yield very high and protein very high at the same time, as well as, you know, the neat stuff with uh, with soy oleic and the high oleic uh, fatty acid. It's, it's really neat stuff, but breeding is so important. And uh, the public programs, by the way, I think they really help to... Um, they help in a lot of different ways, but one of the things is the genetic diversity uh, germplasm that's used by uh, by industry, by companies. A lot of the bigger seed companies use the public programs to work with them on, on improved genetics, um, along with their breeding that they do uh, That's that's been fantastic. So um, just a lot of great work that's done through, through the soybean sure. breeding program. Well, I think it reasons to say that the more people working on working on that genetic pool of information and the more diverse that genetic pool is the better Absolutely. products you're going to end up with you know for the end user yes and, and some of the areas that uh, are looking at abiotic stress are done a lot through the public uh, mm-hmm. programs uh, dr chen is working uh he's kind of the a leader uh, in the soybean industry working on flood tolerance of soybeans and uh, he's got some some very good projects. Uh, it's a multi-state project through the Delta region. I think that could expand into other parts of the country because as we see some weather changes, you know, one of the things, climate change gets talked about all the time, but one of the things that can be documented that's changed the most is the frequency of high rainfall events. Oh, yeah. Yep. And we, we get some extremes, right? That's absolutely <laughs> we, right. We're definitely, and Missouri always has had these extremes. So yeah. I don't know if that's changing or just getting more frequent, but, you know, we have both drought and flood. Uh, Felix Fritchie has, has done uh, projects on heat tolerance and drought tolerance and soybeans. Mm-hmm. Dr. Chin working on, uh, on the flood tolerance and seeing really marked significant varietal difference uh, sure. in varieties for flood for the ability yeah. to last longer under water saturated conditions really can be helpful seems like we can have drought and flood in the same year absolutely now. and we yeah. often do often do yeah and uh just that resilience <clears throat> to to holding up a decent yield through those conditions i think is it going to be a, is today but still will be moving forward an important value in a in a uh in a seed variety that you know somebody should be looking at absolutely uh, you know, working in uh, eastern Missouri, northeast Missouri, with our clay pan soils, it's pretty common that in the spring, yep. right, we're too wet. That's right. <laughs> and the clay pan holds the water, um, especially on the, the areas with, with less slope, but we can really hold that water and be saturated. And then, like like uh, like we like to say in Missouri, we're never two weeks away from a drought, right? So, <laughs> but right. We, we definitely have both. Uh, oh, for sure. Quite frequently, yep. I think. Yep. That's exactly right. You mentioned some of the, <clears throat> you know, the genetics research kind of over your career. What are some of the, you know, kind of the 
fertility or actual, you know, in-season management stuff that you've seen change so much with soybeans? I think that uh, putting the emphasis on fertilizing for the crop itself, not yep. just as not just carried over from from corn, but fertilizing, and soybeans are a big user of, of potassium. Yeah, you know, so about a fifty bushel, which now like that's the state average, around a fifty say, bushel yeah. Yeah. Uh, soybean crop uses more potash than a two hundred bushel crop of corn does. Okay. So. Uh, and 200 is still a pretty good corn yield, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, there's a, a high demand for, for potash and soybeans. I think we need to really watch the fertility. There's trials uh, that are being conducted now around the state in the strip trial program looking at sulfur. A lot mm-hmm. of farmers are using sulfur in Missouri. Right. Seen data out of Purdue uh, where they've had pretty good response to soybeans to sulfur. Mm-hmm. And so we... Uh, we continue to kind of fine-tune our fertility and our needs there. Um, we've got good cyst-resistant varieties. Uh, so when we have bad problems with cyst, it's often more in a drought year, and it desiccates those smaller, lateral, smaller finer root system. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not a lateral root. It's a, it's a weak tap root on soybean, but the, the finer roots are desiccated when we have a lot of, uh, a lot of SCN, uh, cyst nematode, on those roots, and we're seeing a higher population of those, even, you know, with the resistant varieties. So there, there's still an important emphasis on that. And I mentioned that along with the fertility because when you have desiccated the root system, then you see that nutrient deficiency. That's why usually a symptom of, of cyst nematode, a lot of times it's just some yield lag, right. you know, yield drop. But if there's a visual symptom, it's, it's kind of that potash deficient symptom that often yep. shows up. So yep. those kind of go hand in hand. But I, I think that uh, the other thing, and, and Adam, you mentioned this, but I just think there's been more emphasis on managing soybeans as a primary crop. Yeah. And that goes with the... Uh, with the fungicides and insecticide use, yeah, I think there's more stink bug um, impact than we realize. Absolutely, a, a lot yeah. of research that I'd worked with previously and I've seen from universities and and work we've done is that uh, we get some benefit from fungicides, especially as needed, but when you add the insecticide, yep. it's when it's usually the most consistent, right? And there's, you know, I would. Uh, definitely want to promote the IPM, you know, and use of uh, fungicides and insecticides as needed. But uh, I think that frequently we've got enough stink sure. bug that uh, there's I think there's we're some uh, loss there. That's right. I think, uh, and I exa- you're exactly right. And obviously, I would um, agree with that. But I, I think we're over threshold, probably more broad scale than what a lot of people think. You know, they're hard to scout um, for. And, yeah, yes. yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, you have to know what you're looking for, what what growth stage, what insect. Yes, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot going on out out there that you just drive by and boy, those beans look good. You know, but you, it's hard to see what's going on under the canopy there. Yes. And so, one of the things we funded through the I say we very loosely. It's the it's the soybean farmers of Missouri who are funding it and, and their checkoff, but the. Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council, uh, a few years ago, we funded a study that Kevin Rice at MU was doing on uh, using a sticky trap uh, at the edge of fields for soybeans for stink bug mm-hmm. as a good, you know, it's, 
it's a big mobile insect. It can move right. around a lot. You yep. don't, you know, how many people go out and use sweep nets, you know, really. Yep. So he was, he's looked at alternative trapping methods to make it easier to scout for them. But I, I agree with you completely. I think we're over a threshold uh, more frequently, more frequently than we know because they're just so hard to, to yeah. scout for. Yeah. 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 I'd agree. Yeah, well, and I would the other thing I would just they're not a defoliator either, right? Exactly. So yeah. so you don't exactly. it's not easy to just walk into the edge of your field and like Japanese beetles. That's oh, the point. It's yeah, defo- it's defoliating. Okay, I need to spray. So I mean that's right. yeah, and, and a lot of times those defoliating insects it can be a bit of a knee jerk reaction with them because that's right. You know you see that you, you're exactly right, Cameron. You see that damage, but with stink bugs and that sucking piercing mouth part that they have you don't really see what they do but it can sure yeah it can sure impact the yield yeah well yeah you've had such an interesting career greg and i know you're you're getting ready to hang it up at, at some point here which which i hate to see to be very honest um it's our podcast cameron so i can say that i hate yeah. i hate to see you go out of the uh the public eye on on being a voice for some of these things but kind of looking looking forward um what do you see kind of as the next uh kind of the next round of challenges for the industry or the next next hurdles that we may have to overcome or kind of some of those next level management practices that may be commonplace, you, you think, maybe a couple decades from now? I think there's a number of things that, you know, we kind of already talked about the weed control, but I'd go back to that because I do think that we're just going to have to look at, at all kinds of different ways to control our weeds, right. not just through chemicals because we've seen history repeat itself with the resistance. Uh, right I mean that's happened so so I say that's one that we're gonna have to look at alternative means and I think technology has really kicked in over my career you know it was uh, something that at one point uh, yield monitors were were coming into existence and people mapping fields but what do you do with that you know and um, so we've seen the really the ability and adaptation to change things on the go. We're going to be fine-tuning and more precisely managing uh, our acres. I think that's a, a, a very big change. And then, you know, kind of along the lines of that weed control and other things, we're going to see the use of uh, robotics more and uh, the, the use of drones, you know, at first for a scouting tool, was one thing, but we're seeing the ability to even spray and seed things, seed yep. cover crops with with drones. Uh, that'll get perfected more over time. Sure. And we've got yep. autonomous tractors, you know, and and uh, and such. So I think that technologies uh, is something we're going to have to stay on top of, and uh, and we will, mm-hmm. and that we're very well poised to do that. But those are those are some things. One of the things. That, you know, I guess talking about uh, corn, yeah. <laughs> if I might, you know, yeah. is, is uh, we'll and, allow it. I'll allow it. Okay, so <laughs> I'm, I'm with the Soybean uh, Association of Merchandising Council, but I, I would mention too with corn, one thing that has changed is that, uh, and I I give Peter Scarf a lot of credit for the work he did over the years in showing that we could we could uh, correct problems with nitrogen deficiency from springtime, you know, too much water and maybe not able to get that in on and apply that nitrogen late. We didn't used to be able to do that as easily. Now we've got the ability to get over fields 
better and, yep. and different means and more precisely, uh, more precisely, absolutely. Yeah. And yep. and you know, uh, um, not an advocate of putting all the nitrogen on late, but we can correct problems mm-hmm. later than we thought. Right. And I think that his research was really good at showing that. Yeah, with soybeans, one of the things that I think that uh, we're seeing these really high yields and still we go back to uh, what's holding it back you know when we is is 100 bushels a barrier or you know uh, we, we keep we keep growing so I don't know if there is a barrier but right it seems like that research has confirmed over time that uh, we can only fix so much nitrogen through yep. the nodules mm-hmm. I'm not advocating people put nitrogen know go out and fertilize your soybeans with nitrogen but uh, it seems like we need need to reach those very very high yields we we need more nitrogen so right looking more at the rhizobia improving those to be able to fix higher levels of nitrogen sure perhaps we do look at some in-season nitrogen and, mm-hmm. and such I wouldn't yep. take that off the table but I'm not advocating that because yeah. at our normal soybean yields that's not something needed, but I think that's yeah. something in soybeans that uh, is is you know being being shown. So I think that's something that we'll uh, we'll see some more emphasis on. But also, uh, there's a lot of opportunity with uh, with the quality of soybeans and the things we can do through technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, the you know the soylaic hyolaic is a great example of that. Right. Right. And and I think that. You know, I'm kind of big on this, but I've, I've talked about it a lot over the years, but I'm a believer in the use of GMOs and gene editing and, and those technologies. They've been great for us. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that over time they'll be accepted uh, over a large part of the world yeah. and uh, that we don't hold ourselves back from being able to improve soybeans and other crops through those means right. because they're restricted for, for yeah. you know, in my opinion, no good reason. That's right. And and I think that that's maybe starting to soften. You know, there was just a yeah. recent uh, report out in China uh, about work that they're doing more on allowing GMOs there in their yeah. country. And they do a lot of the research on gene editing. Sure. It's done right there in China. So <laughs> yeah. it's been kind of hypocritical. Oh, you know, for sure. For, yeah. But... Um, uh, I, I hope too that we see a lot more ability to, to use. I, Norman Borlaug was a was a kind of a hero of mine, but Norman Borlaug, till the day he died, I think was was advocating that uh, we need to use these techniques because otherwise we're we're kind of keeping you know one arm tied behind our back, not being able to right. to, to make improvements that could be done. Yep. Uh, if they're not allowed. Yeah. Right. And, and haven't shown a problem. I mean, things sure. genetically modified naturally over the centuries, right? We know that. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, getting on a soapbox a no, little bit there, but, <laughs> that's but that's great. that's something I really believe in, yeah. and I, I hope that that continues. That we'll see more acceptance of, of GMOs and and understanding it and talking to people that aren't. Um, you know, aren't aware of what a GMO really is or what that means or 
that it can yep. and does happen in nature and really explaining that, I think that we'll see. Embracing the ability to, uh, to not just state your point, but to educate kind of the background of the situation. Yes. And um, I think that's, you know, there's, we just, yeah. I mean, it's a societal problem that we don't want to get into, but it's, it's one of those things that just, if folks just took the time to, to become educated and, and to properly educate, I think that's on both sides of that. Yes. Um, it, I think it could solve some of those issues a little bit versus, you know, just kind of firming up your own stance. Absolutely. Things. But absolutely. Yeah. Yes. No, that's that's awesome, Greg. I appreciate all those all those thoughts, and I I agree with with pretty much everything you said on on kind of where we're going. I mean, the right. the you know the technology adoption. I mean, the, some things that we you know look at today, and you're like, ah, oh, it's not scalable. You know, like mm-hmm. watch Kevin right. Bradley drive across the field with the weed zapper on the loader thing, and you're like, eh, it's cool, but it's not scalable, right? Eh. With autonomy, that changes all of those conversations. It does, and yes. the same thing on the drone side of things. You know it. Um, when you look at a, if a practice can work, uh, you know, I think autonomy makes some of that stuff scalable. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think on the soil, you know, you, the microbiome of the soil too is something we've kind of ignored for a long time. Yeah. And yes. so now I think that's one thing that we're really starting to look at and trying to make sure we understand is because I think we've, I don't say, want to say we have a great grip on everything above the plant, you know, from fungicides, insecticides, nitrogen management. We're still working on those and getting better at it. But, I mean, other than understanding, okay, N, P, and K, our fertility from that aspect, the soil microbiome is something I feel like has an yeah. untapped potential that we haven't worked on, to, you know, that we're really starting to work on. And I think could really push not only soybean yields, but corn yields as well um, from that aspect, just getting a better understanding of that. I agree. I, I think that's an area that yeah, I, w- I studied soils in college uh, at, at SMS, at Southwest Missouri <laughs> State, and then at MU. And I had an instructor named Vernon Renner down at Southwest Missouri State. Some, some folks might, might remember Dr. Renner. He's a great professor, but he, he was a big advocate of, uh, of Dr. Albrecht. And he'd done his studies at the University of Missouri, Dr. Renner had. And, uh, under Albrecht and, and other folks, Dr. Woodruff and, and you know, many of those, those older names that, uh, you know, we still talk about. But I, it's interesting that we're getting back to looking at some of the things that they were talking about in the 1940s and 50s. <laughs> and, and now we're getting, you know, back to uh, yep. some of that becoming, uh, you know, it's neat to see the adoption of cover crops getting better and... Uh, one of the things that I'd like to, you know, mention is is wheat. You know, I, we've yep. when I was at at MU uh, working with uh, wheat, we were trying to promote, and hopefully it'll still happen, but a, a wheat association in Missouri. But wheat's a great crop and has some some place. Uh, you know, uh, a wheat double crop soybean program is is really really sound and still used a lot in parts of Missouri yep. and uh, Missouri's still a big state in, in soft red winter wheat. We've mm-hmm. been the number one state in production of soft red winter wheat. Well, I mentioned that because, you know, Cameron, to your point about building soils and having a cover crop and, and wheat can act as a cover crop that we can harvest. So right. I think wheat in our rotation can help on, on quite a few acres in Missouri. Uh, so that's another, another thing that I, I still think uh, we'll see see more of over time you know things um things kind of come around but uh 
the, the use of cover crops has certainly been one. Back in the 80s, there was a, you know, a time where cover crops were becoming a bit in vogue and we were seeing you know, efforts in that. It kind of stalled out and uh, you know, largely because of NRCS and, and you know, promoting and, and some dollars put into that. Obviously, uh, farmers have, have tried it and adopted it and liked it. And you know, we're seeing some farmers farm very big acreages and putting cover crops on every acre now. Yep. And yep. Uh, we'll mention particular names, but there's some very large farm operations that are doing that. And I know you guys That's work right. with them and we're seeing that uh, really increase and I think mm -hmm. that's that's great that's that improvement to the soil is a big thing and the erosion control that, that and just the resilience through provide. resilience through those events that we talked about earlier you know I think that's a that's a big thing is just managing that uh, managing that soil yeah, environment that, you know that buffer for that those higher rainfall events yep yeah absolutely yep. yep that's right get you longer through those seems like you know flash drought events that we have later in the summer I mean it's just keeping you know properly managing that soil environment. We know how to manage the above ground crop like what Cameron talked about. It's, I think it's all in that, in that soil management that, that we will continue to find things to better understand. That's right, that's right. And you know, soybeans uh, after a cover crop and typically it's cereal rye that's used in, in Missouri the most. Uh, we see yield performance is, is excellent yeah. and, and no different than if there was no cover crop used. Um, and with, with corn, we've seen some difference, but we're, we're trying to figure out good ways. That's, that's an emphasis of research is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, corn typically gets put onto soybean ground, soybean residue, that's more erosive. Yep. We don't have enough residue out there to, 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 to give us a full level of, of control that we need for erosion control. And that benefit of using a cover crop ahead of corn is something I think we we really need to push for. So I hope yep. that we find, um, you know, good techniques and uh, and certain cover crops that work well um, ahead of corn more and more and in increase the use of cover crops that way. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing. I mean, I mean, you also touched on when we were when Adam asked you know kind of some of the things you see, but I think soybeans have a much greater potential. We haven't tapped into. I mean, you, we've talked about how the yields. And, you know, it went from 50 to 80, and now you're doing your rechecks at 90 instead of even 75. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. I think soybeans just in general, based on as much work as we've done in the past years on corn, we've pushed. I'm not saying we haven't pushed to the limit of corn, but I think we're still on the young phase of being able to push the limit of soybeans just in being able to not only push yield, but like you also talked about quality of, uh, you know, just the quality of products yes. we can get from soybeans. Yes, absolutely. I agree, Cameron. The yield, the quality, the traits for, for quality, um, the consistency. And that's one of the reasons to look at uh, those, those abiotic stress factors, the, the, yeah. the tolerance to flooding and drought tolerance. Uh, so it's, it's keeping that average up, right? You know, yep. It's not that's just right. hitting a 100 bushel yield, but it's, it's keeping us from, from those bad areas of the field where you know, it either yep, yep. drowns out or, uh, you know, drought affects to the point where we're making, you know, 30 bushel soybeans instead yep. of instead yep. of 50 plus soybeans. That's right. We don't get a chance to grow in a greenhouse. So we've got to manage right. the entire field. Absolutely. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Exactly right. Greg, thank you so much for coming in. Is there anything else you want to cover before we kind of wrap it up today? I can't say how much I appreciate you coming over today. 
Well, I really appreciate doing this with you, Adam and Cameron. This has been a lot of fun and uh, just talking about agronomy and yeah, it yeah. is a, yeah. a blast to me. But, you know, I just mentioned, you know, it's just been a privilege to work uh, in Missouri for the farmers of the state. And I've always felt that way when I worked in the industry with Pioneer and when I've been doing this job with, with MU and the Missouri Soybean Association and Merchandising Council uh, working with and for the farmers. I, yep. They're great folks that, uh, you know, are so resilient too. It's just, yep. I, I'm just so appreciative of working with farmers because they, um, they face so many challenges, you know, economic challenges, uh, mechanical challenges yep. that they have on their operation. And then, you know, dealing with the crop and, and they're just so resilient, uh, and uh, it's just a privilege working with farmers. So I've really enjoyed that. And, and it's been a lot of fun talking to you guys today. I agree. It's yeah. just, yeah. Thanks again, Greg. It's so easy to see your passion for the for the industry and, and passion for those farmers, those growers across the state. And appreciate everything you've done in your career. And I just encourage folks listening to this. If you can find a young agronomist or find somebody, a young farmer, and, and share this episode with them. Um, I think they'll get out a, a lot out of listening to you, Greg. So I appreciate well, it. Gosh, thank you very much. But it's been a privilege talking to you guys. And I sure, anytime, I love to talk about agronomy. So uh, <laughs> anytime we can do that, we'll be glad to do it. For sure. Thanks again, Greg. Appreciate everybody listening. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.